Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon, and my special guest today is Devdut Yelukar, who was a sales VP for nine years, a CEO for 15 years, and a venture capitalist for nine years. Devdutt is a managing partner at CRV, where he's focused on early stage investments in cloud applications, mobile, big data, and robotics. He holds several board positions, including Zendesk, a company, Cubol, OneLogin, and Rethink Robotics. Prior to CRV, Devdutt was part of three successful startups. He was CEO of Yantra, an e-commerce platform which was acquired by AT&T. And prior to Yantra, Devdutt was an early employee at Infosys when it was a startup. And now Infosys is one of the most well-known IT services companies in the world. Before Infosys, Devdutt was the VP of sales at KBX. Hey, Devdutt, how are you today? Hey, John. Long time no see. Yeah, long time. Where are you today? I'm in New York. You know, yeah. in the city. All right. Happy. Uh, just came back from a long walk in the park with my wife. Nice. Relax. Yeah. Perfect. Nice weather up there right now, too, right? It's like unseasonably warm. Yeah. 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 Hey, Devdite. So you've spent in your career nine years as a salesperson and a sales VP, nine years as a CEO of a software company, and then 15 years as a venture capitalist. So I think we got a lot to talk about here, but let's start with, because you were in sales and there's a lot of salespeople in this audience. Do you think your time in sales actually helped you as a CEO? Absolutely. You know, so let me, um, you know, I was a accidental uh, sales person. You know, I, I joined uh, Infosys, which was at that time a startup uh, as a, it's kind of a, one of the software people. We are very, very small under. And very quickly, we decided that we need to kind of build our own um, sales presence. And I put up my hand and I said, you know, I've done commercial before. Let me, let me build the organization. And we, are, we were inventing a new scheme um, or a new model for software development. At that time, you know, India was not known for software development. You know, the IT industry was new. And right. uh, I decided to kind of take on the role of uh, sales. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't all, all have all your sophistication of uh, quota capacity models and sales, <laughs> you know, none of that stuff. So we built a model actually that worked for us. We, uh, I, I recruited a bunch of um, salespeople who were like me, who were kind of slightly technical. Um, I called them kind of, they were, they were MBAs, engineer MBAs who could sell a big vision. And because we were trying to sell India as a, as a software, software development powerhouse at that time, nobody knew who we were and that kind of worked. And, um, 
So we didn't have a quota capacity that we were building ourselves. We were just trying to sell the concept. And we went on to build a monster company. Today, the market cap is close to $80 billion, 200,000 plus employees. Yeah. Uh, sales and marketing still running at under 5, 6, 7% of the revenue. So, you know, we completely redefined how you do sales from, from, um, from that perspective. But I think that career kind of launched me into building my own company and then eventually becoming a VC. And that thread of a, of a salesperson has remained with me for my entire life now. So did, did you actually start as a software developer and then you put your hand up and said, I want to be in sales? Yeah, yeah. That's really a, different because there's not many software developers that I met, in the, at least these days, that actually want to go into sales. They actually want to hide from most salespeople. You know, I think we, uh, what, what, so the, my life before Infosys was also interesting. You know, we, I had a, I had joined a place as a software developer. It was an automotive startup. We were manufacturing braking systems for cars, hydraulic braking systems. And uh, given your experience at PTC, you'll know this stuff. You know, we were building uh, wheel cylinders and brake pads and a bunch of that stuff for Bosch, which was a German company. We didn't use Pro-E that time, you know, that time it was maybe, you know, drafting machines. But um, I had a CEO who, uh, a, a lifelong mentor of mine called Peter Baptista, who I was 23 years old. He picked me up and said, you know, stop doing this IT stuff. Help me build the company. And he gave me a variety of roles, sales, marketing, business development, a bunch of stuff, and kind of trained me up. So I was actually trained by him to do a variety of things outside of tech. So when I joined Infosys, um, you know, I was raring to go. I was ready to kind of take on something that was different than tech. Maybe I was not a good developer. <laughs> that was part right. of the reason. So then you were in sales and actually became a sales VP at Infosys. And then you decided to, you know, start your own company. You became the CEO Tell us a little bit about how maybe your time, those nine years in sales actually helped you as a CEO. You know, you, you're going to be selling all the time. You're always be selling. So as a CEO, you know, you're selling uh, to get early customers. You're at the tip of the arrow. You are selling to get raised capital. You know, this is a, it's just, you know, you're going to be selling your product. And you're selling to hire employees who don't want to join startups. You want to hire high quality people who don't want to join startups. And that, I think that kind of stayed with me about, you know, sales is actually integral to building, to being a good CEO. I, I had a very interesting um, kind of a conversation with one of my mentors um, when I was about to start Yentra. And, you know, I was full of myself, you know, I'd, we had built Infosys. It was kind of, we had redefined India from a tech perspective, and I was brimming with confidence. I was 34 years old, 34, 35, ready to go. And I met, met a professor, a mentor of mine who said, and I asked him you know, how, the, the art of company building. And he said, you know, building a company is like an arrow. You know, you, you as a CEO, as a, you're at the tip of the arrow. And you are the sharpest person in the room, you're pulling people along, you've got a team, 
They are kind of helping you build. But your your job is to go get the early customers. Your job is to get the early financing. Your job is to you know build a team around you. So you're at the tip of the arrow. You have to be very very sharp. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to kind of get any lift off. He said there will be a point in time when it's not going to be about yourself. You you know how to how to hit the target. Your job then becomes to get to the center of the arrowhead. And you're hiring people who are much, much better than you in a variety of functions. And your job has to be, and there's so much energy in that, in that arrowhead that it wants to go in different directions because they're all very smart people. And all you do is try to keep that shape of that arrowhead. You know, your 100% of your energy is just going to not being at the tip of the arrow, but being kind of managing to keep that velocity going while keeping that arrowhead, the shape of the arrowhead, because very sharp, the people better than you, and they want to go in different directions. So your job is to just become that. And once you get momentum with that, then you go to the back of the arrow, because at that point of time, all you're doing is giving direction. Right, right. This is not being, you've been, you know, you built PTC sales, you know. What is different between, you know, your early job as a rep when you was to work with uh, Dick Harrison? to when you became EVP of worldwide sales. You know, you went through the same process of arrow building. You know, right. you built your, you know, you built, you were at the tip of the uh, arrow when you're trying to sell ProE. You got to the middle as you tried to scale the organization. And then you just kind of went to the back of the arrow to give direction. <laughs> and, you know, that, that parable is, I think, important, was important to me as I built the company. And it was, it was exactly the same way I'd built um, the sales organization. You know, you have to bring in people who are better than you. You have to bring in people and trust them. You know, the model has to be built, as you said, you know, I remember you telling me this once, the entire model is built on RDs, right? You know, you, you just right. have to make sure that you bring the best RDs and everything else happens. Uh, properly. Right. So I think in building a company, you have to bring the right people and the right executive team in place. So once you bring that in place, you know, then, then things get easier. Now, when you were selling, you said like you had to sell the first early customers, you had to sell early financing, you had to do recruiting. A lot of that is selling. I mean, you yeah. have to really sell to get your first customers. You have to really sell the VCs to get your early financing. Yeah. It's all selling. That's right. You know, I think, and I was in enterprise software. So enterprise soft, one thing that you realize in enterprise software is that you're not selling feature functions. Very early, you know, we re- you have to sell the whole product. You're selling features, you're selling quality, you're selling performance, you're selling scalability, you're selling interoperability, stuff that is important for the enterprise. You know, implement quality of implementation, quality of support. So getting early customers as a CEO or as a, as a sales leader, if you can tell the story that is different than just the feature function, because people just don't buy feature function. They're buying the company. They're buying the they're buying the the things on the other side of the product. I think that experience of selling Infosys helped me sell enterprise software, right? Because it, quickly I realized it is not about having the right feature functions, only the right feature functions, because people buy different things. The second thing I learned, and I I heard this story from Jack Welch, and I used to make a lot of mistakes in hiring, a lot of mistakes, especially at the executive level. And at well, one of my one of these VC events early in my career as a 
as a in, in the, uh, kind of a VC as a CEO. I'd gone down to Florida, one of these you know boondoggles that VC set up, and I was a young CEO. And Jack Welch had just retired and was on a book tour, so they had invited him to this this place. And and I got like one question to ask him. You know, everybody was given the question to ask, and my question to him was like, "How do you recruit?" Because he was known as one of the best team builders in the world, right? And Jack Welch gave me a fantastic boost of confidence. He said, even at my level as a CEO of G, I've been wrong one third of the time. You're just wrong. You know, you, you try to do your best in uh, finding the right parameters, doing all the references, doing all the checks, and then you still, this still ends up as a dud. Your job then becomes getting rid of them quickly. As soon as you know, take, take them out. Yeah. That is something that I wish I knew when I was a VP sales. You know, it, I, I think it's the same thing in sales, right? You just, you, you're going to make mistakes, but you want to recover from those pretty quickly. But he probably pulled over into your VC time because a lot of times when you're building a productivity model, yeah, sometimes you get the VCs that haven't been around for a while. Or certainly the CFO, who's the first time CFO at a startup, and you put in the model like 25% attrition, which is really 20% attrition and 5% promotions. And they're like, oh, that's way too high. And then you just ask them, okay, out of 10 people, if you're going to hire 10 people, how many mistakes are you going to make? Yeah. And they say, well, I'll make at least two or three. Okay, well, we're at 20 or 30% <laughs> right there. <laughs> And then yeah. they back off because then reality hits them in the face because they just yeah. look at that number and think that it's too big. But in yeah. Jack Welch's case, he's even saying it was higher. It's higher. Not that high, you know. At, and he was hiring CEOs. Yeah. Right? Because there were divisional CEOs and he was making mistakes there. I mean, just, you know, it, it gave me so much confidence as a recruiter, as a person. Like, I, I became a little more confident of recruiting. Earlier, I used to just like analysis paralysis, you know, like, oh my God, I hope I don't make a mistake. I hope I don't, like, I would make, I would lose people based on that. Yeah. And, and how about forecasting? You were, had to forecast the business as a sales VP and now you're the CEO. You got venture capitalists that gave you money and now they're looking for you to tell them exactly what the, you're going to do in the quarter. Do you think that forecasting, you know, when you were in sales helped you, you know, when you were a CEO? You know, I wish you did. <laughs> At least you're being honest. <laughs> when Most I was people would system. just take the bait and say, yes, it definitely helped me. But you're being uh, honest. Yeah. No, no, I'll tell you the, the real difference is this. As uh, when I was building Infosys sales, I never missed a quarter in my life. As a public company VP sales, I, I had 16 quarters of beating and exceeding numbers. Because it was a services subscription business. Right. Then I started selling enterprise software, big deals. And you were selling perpetual software back Perpetual then. software, yeah. Like, oh my God, this is, you know, and at scale, when you're like a billion dollars in revenue, the variability is not too much. But when you're doing 20 million in revenue, the $3 million deal slippage hurts like crazy. Yes. So we, part of the reason we never went public was because I couldn't fix that model. I couldn't get to scale. Mm. You know, it was just, just painful. You know, I was, I wish we had moved to 
to SaaS in 2001 when I was, you know, when, when we had the opportunity. Yeah, that's you know, what I think a lot of people that are younger on the, on, in the audience don't understand. When you were selling perpetual software, if you were doing $30 million in, in, in the current year, when you started the new year, you were zero. You were zero. Now, right. you had to, now you had to do 60 if you wanted to double. You were right. zero because there was no subscription. That's right. There was yeah. no base. The, the base right. was gone. So I think now, that, what do you, what was the learning there? Why do you think you couldn't scale? Do you think that that was because, you know, those $3 million deals in my experience hurt mostly when you don't have enough pipeline, when you have a lot of pipeline, you can cover. Yeah. Essentially I use the word cover. You can cover for that $3 million deal. So you can kind of hedge your bet. You can say, if I don't get this $3 million deal, I kind of know that, you know, I could get 10 other deals at 300 yeah. grand that yeah. are going to make, make it up. You're the, you're the boss here. You know, like, you know, you know, this is about pipeline. You know, this is about coverage. So what happened, you know, we, we were building our company in the, the company was two in two phases. We went from building a WMS company in during the dot-com run up. And then the bubble burst in 2000 and then 2001, 9-11 happened. And we went into a nuclear winter. Mm. So people had stopped buying. People had stopped kind of, you. there was just not enough pipe to build. You know, there were just, you had every deal, you, know, you had to live and die by the deal. So this is, you know, you should, I'm sure you read Ben Horowitz's, uh, you know, book on this. We, 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 I went through a kind of a parallel journey on the East Coast. Successful, you know, we were one of the few companies that survived because of, just because I did not give up, I just kept fighting. But 96 to 2004, when I built that company, was uh, like a tale of two cities. You know, we had 96 to 2000 was just up and up and up. Right. 2001 to 2004 was an absolute grind. Yeah. Absolute grind. I mean, they called it the cliff because it really was like you fell off a cliff. Yeah. No, I, you know, one of the things that I'm most proud of is we were doing 20 million in revenue in 2000 and we did 22 million in revenue in 2001 with a complete churn of the account base. Wow. That's yeah. a lot. That's a lot. We never let, uh, it, it was an incredible, it, it, I mean, it was, um, it defined me as a human, many, many lessons there. Many lessons about recruiting, many lessons about firing, many lessons about loyalty, about, uh, you know, who should be in the boat, who should not be in the boat. Um, how do you conserve cash? Uh, hopefully we don't run into those scenarios now, but, you know, those, those lessons were hard and important. But what I think you're pointing out is that some of our greatest lessons are based upon our toughest experiences. Mm -hmm. If you've ever just only been in a couple companies that just took off like rockets, you probably never had any scars of experience. You never had any real lessons learned. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when we really learn is when we face real difficulties. I think the third, you know, you're asking me what, as a salesperson, helped me as a CEO. The, the thing that I learned and, you know, I learned how to recognize a grin fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to get good at that. Yeah. 
because in sales, you get this all day long. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. You right. Grand fact all day long. Yeah. And as a, as a, as an entrepreneur, you get grand fucked by VCs all day long, all yes. day long. Yeah. Like they'll tell you like they, they will take the meeting. They will not say anything in the meeting. They'll, they'll say, yeah, yeah, we'll get back to you and say, oh, wow, that was fantastic. And then they will get back. Right. One of the things I learned as a, as one of the things I took away from being a CEO into VC was exactly that. Like I'm going to give my answer in the meeting to the entrepreneur. It may hurt. It may, and it not, it may, it does hurt because it's a negative. It's like a no, but I think it's, you know, I, I suffered through 40, 50 meetings where the, they, they were all yeses. I mean, they were all grin fucks. No, 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 nothing at the end of it. Yeah. Well, that's so, what every good salesperson starts to understand. I'd rather hear the no early. I'd rather hear the objections early so I can decide whether or not I want to spend time at this account or I want to move on. That's right. And it so takes a I, while to really be comfortable with that. I don't think that's, that's something I wasn't comfortable with very early on. Yeah, I think as a VC, it's very hard to call, you know, because when you say no to somebody, it's like calling your baby ugly, right? Yes. It, that's why people don't do it. Yeah. Because the entrepreneur wants to know why you're not funding me. I mean, I, I'm the best thing since whatever, since, uh, you know, PTC, why aren't you investing in me? And when you say, no, I, it doesn't fit my eye, whatever the reason is, you have to not only say it with empathy, but give them a good reason and hope that they walk away from that meeting feeling like they, they got something positive out of it. It's so is that hard. what you did when you became a VC? You would That's, basically that was my not, entire not grin fuck them? You'd, you'd yeah. tell them, look, this is, this is why I'm not gonna, going to invest with you? That became my brand. You know what also that happens there is you, if, you, if you are the VC, you, want, you are the VC. You want to hand them those objections to see if they can actually handle it. If they can't That's handle it. it, then you know you're making the right decision also. It's That's better right. than like, as you said, quote unquote, it's better than grin fucking them. That's right. That's right. I think it's a, uh, you know, I, I think that is a uh, important kind of, you, you want to see the fight. You want to yeah. see that. You want to see that pushback. Yeah. What and do you think is the most difficult part of selling when you're a VC? You're a VC now and you're trying to sell us. You actually have to sell the startup on why they should invest with you and invest with Charles River. What, what's the most difficult part of, of selling as a venture capitalist? You know, I think, um, as an East Coast firm, CRV, um, we had to move to the West. Yes. Primarily because the, A, the action was on the West Coast and B, we are selling money. You know, like it's, we are salespeople. We are selling money. We're hoping that entrepreneurs you know, pick us. And the world had changed from, the power had shifted from the venture capitalists to the entrepreneurs by the time I became a VC. It was, that shift had happened. The best, why do you, the why best do you think that happened? Why did the shift happen from moved from the VCs to the, to the entrepreneurs? Do you think it's because there was too much money out there chasing, chasing deals? I, a, yes, but B, I think the industry had gone through a certain level of maturity. Now we had more, better ideas, bigger ideas and bigger opportunities ahead of us. I mean, look at the amount of decacons that have been born in the past 10 years. Not unicorns, decacons in the public market. So that opportunity shifted and 
great entrepreneurs had now had 15, 20 years experience of the business or 10 years experience of the business, especially in the enterprise space. And when they got there, they could kind of command best, especially when you get to seed and series A. By the time we saw the company, the company had something working, you know, so you could command a lot of interest. Mm. And I think that I think was a big shift. And when we moved to the West Coast, when we forced the company to move to the West Coast, we actually had changed our name from Charles River Ventures to CRV. Okay, yeah. Because on the West Coast, it's highly competitive. The, you know, those firms in the Valley, I mean, it's like playing basketball. There's sharp, very sharp elbows there and the elbows are flying, you know, under the basket. And it is, uh, they will not, they, they would, say, hey, this, this firm is called Charles River Ventures because it's Charles River is in the West, on the East Coast. You know, this is an East Coast firm. Right. So we had to aim, move it to the West Coast. B, nobody really knew the brand very well. So we had to kind of uh, build references from, or that were West Coast based. So it took us a while to, so if you look at the venture business, A, it's a sales business, but it is really a, a reference sales business. You have to build a strong portfolio, strong references. Once you get good references, then it becomes easier. So very similar to software, you know, you'll get very good references. And you the thing that is different though in software and VC is that it is so much of a reference business that you're only as good as your last reference. Mm. So you can't make too many mistakes. You know, you're not, no, you can't make mistakes. There is no fucking up a deal. And the references you're talking about are the specific founders of these, of the startups. Good and bad. Yeah. You know, you never pull a term sheet. Your brand, you're like, you know, yeah, your board is like, once you give a term sheet, it's there. Yeah. You never, uh, you know, uh, never mess around with the founder. There are many it's things. not too hard for them to network inside the Bay Area to figure out, you know, which deals you have funded and which deals you walked away from. They can figure yeah. that out pretty quickly. Yeah. And you know, in, in software, we have like 2000 customers. So you, you know, you're one or two mistakes, you can kind of live with it. In venture, you're like 30 companies, 40 companies. You make one or two mistakes, they'll come back to haunt you for a long time. Yeah. So we, you're only as good as your last reference. So yes, it's a sales business, it's a reference sales business, but the references are like gold, cannot make mistakes. And the other thing that you'll, you'll like, is that when I joined CRV, we brought in a little bit of the sales methodology back into, into qualification. So I, you know, I didn't implement medic, but, <laughs> but, but I got pretty close. You got pretty close. Yeah. I got pretty close. Yeah. yeah. You know, like it, you know, identify, I, I, I would make the point to understand what the decision process is and what is the decision criteria. Yes. Very, very, very important. Very, very important. So, and all my younger partners and older partners, you know, that was the discipline when I ran, um, you know, the, not, I won't call it forecast calls, but let's say the, the Monday meetings. Those are the questions that we, we asked, you know, who were, what, who are the influences? Have you covered them? Do, you know, what, who's, who's the person listening to? So, you know, the same, same thing like we do in, in how do you build champions? You know, what is the pain? Have you identified the pain? You know, like that part became important to us. And mm. 
it's 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 really you know uh, for your audience who are salespeople, I think the they'll see a lot of parallels to the venture business. We see sometimes don't like to call it a sales business, but it's it's actually that. It's very much that. Yeah. And the last thing I think is it's a you know as a small firm because we're just six, seven, eight, seven of partners. You know, it's a it's always a team tackle. It's you can't be selling alone, so you have to kind of build the get the entire team to focus on a particular entrepreneur as you as you're trying to build that relationship. So you can't be just an independent proprietor running your own book. You have to bring which actually together. you think I think that some VC firms do that where there's just one the partners basically running their own book and you don't really seem much of a team. I think you know. Look, it's a cottage industry. It's not a big industry. It's, right. it's a cottage. Like every every firm runs it differently. CRV, it's all about team. It's a team yeah. tackle. Good. You know, we feel like we win better as a team. We show better as a team. We work better as a team. And so we have always that's become part of our ethos. You know, that we 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 sell as a team. We work with our customers as a team. The entrepreneur can pick up the phone, call anyone, anytime. Now, when you were selling to a startup as a VC, would your prior sales experience and prior CEO experience resonate with the founders and the executive team? Absolutely, it did. You know, I think um, there's a interview by Vinod Khosla on LinkedIn I saw a couple of days ago where he talked about you know, um, the importance of having built successful companies and why only those people have the right to say anything at board meetings. Um, I don't know whether I completely agree with that, but, you know, I think it helped me. My experience at Infosys as sales, my experience at Yantra as a CEO, definitely allowed me to, um, I'll tell you where it really shone for me. I had more empathy for the founder. Um, I worked hard to my entire work, my entire brand was built on one thing, which is I wait for the phone, my phone to ring when the shit hits the fan. Mm. Well, along those lines, I mean, if you saw them making mistakes, it was it easier to coach them or harder to coach them because of your CEO and sales experience? Or would you just do, do you wait until, like you say, the shit hits the fan? No, I think the, so there are two different things uh, here. The first is your job as a board member is to be a grandparent, not a parent. The, the CEO is the parent. It's her company. Right. You know, I'm a grandparent now. You know, my daughter will cut my head off if I try to act, you know, tell her how, how to raise her family. Yeah, how to be the parent, right? Yeah, I've been a parent before, but <laughs> I know. <laughs> so you have to pick your spots. You have to be very, you have, to, you have to kind of give advice when they ask. You can't be just sitting there giving spouting advice. Yeah. Um, you have to earn the right to, for them to come to you. Because they'll come to you first in the beginning. Yes. And if you, if you mess up, they'll never come to you again. Yeah. So you have, to, so the reason I said that I want my phone to ring 
I'm always on the board with three or four of the best VCs in the industry. You know, all Midas listed. Everybody in the Valley is very, very good. And when the CEO has, a, has trouble, why would they call me over the other three? I had to focus on that aspect of it, which is, you know, A, never judge the person. Because the person, when they call you, they've already tried 15 things and they have not worked. Okay, they are smarter than you are. That's why you put your money into them. Like they've already tried a bunch of stuff. So don't start giving them advice. You know, you pick up, you when they call you, listen and don't judge. Saying you should have done that. Others could have been no judgment. Second, I think help only if you can. You know, if you can't help, get them in front of somebody else who can help. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah. Don't try to be a superhero, but, you know, I think you learn that actually as a grandparent a lot more. That's why, you know, being a grandparent now, I have two grandchildren. It's, it's, uh, it's, I wish I was a grandparent when I was 35, 40, <laughs> because, because these lessons are so important. There's a red, bright red line. Don't never cross it. Never cross it. And we, you have to earn the right for them to ask you for help. They're not just going to show, you know, they're very smart. These entrepreneurs are building multi-billion dollar companies. They're not going to just show up at your doorstep looking for help. Right. They've, they've already tried 15 things before they come to you. I think you really learned that even what you were talking about earlier about being in the back of the atom. Like what I learned is I'm not the smartest guy in the room. So when there's a problem, I have to go find who, who is the smartest person outside this room and bring them into the room. Yeah. You know, because yeah. then they realize it's not about me. It's all about the team. And you know, what can and you, you, do to you help know, the team? John, uh, you know, talking about you, you know, you've been on the board of, I mean, you're, you got like the Midas touch in enterprise software. You learned more about being a board member than I could have ever got. I mean, Snowflake, HubSpot, um, MongoDB. Mongo, MongoDB. Yeah. I mean, these are Decacon companies. You know, I don't think there is a VC in the world that's on the board of three Decacon companies yeah. in, in the enterprise. What did, what, how did you bridge that gap between a VC and a, uh, sorry, as a, in, a board member and a operator? Well, for, I mean, first when I, when I would go in and if they'd ask me to, you know, take a look at being in on the board or an advisor, I really hid my questions around the, what I call the three whys, because I'm not going to run financial analysis like, you know, VCs do. So I just always thought about what is this going to be like when the salesperson that is trying to sell this product across the table from the customer? That was my like vision. So I would ask, you know, I wouldn't ask these specific questions. I'd hide them, but basically it was tell me why the customer has to buy. Meaning that, and I wanted to hear that there was a real major pain. Mm -hmm. Tell me why they have to buy from you. Meaning tell me what your secret sauce is to solve those pains. And then why do they have to buy now? Which is really important. And I also wanted to really know like where they, from those three questions, you can kind of figure out who they sold to in the organization, where they sell into someone in a cubicle or were they selling to the executive suite? Like how big of a problem was this, you know? Mm -hmm. So those were the things that I did, but you're right. Like, you know, in our, 
early days of like Snowflake and working with that team and Chris Degnan, you know, as a salesperson, I was just always there to coach him anytime he called. But now once in a while, if I did see something because of how many times I've done it myself, if I did see something like he's driving straight towards the dead end or straight into (laughs) the guardrails, I might mention, Hey, you know, you might want to take a look at what's going on over here. And um, we could talk about it if you want, but I think you need to go take a look. Because I would just try try to keep them off the guardrails. You commanded that respect, you know, because of your experience, because of what you've done on your past life. You have to be able to command that respect. As VCs, you cannot demand that respect. So you have to have something more to offer. Well, I think you Not did. Just, you had your sales experience. You had your CEO experience. That was a lot more. You had scars, yeah. plenty yeah. of scars of experience, right? And I think I think you bring all that to the table, and then you have to bring that empathy and that non-judgmental point of view. Otherwise, you know, you 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 have these ten-year relationships with these founders. You know, you don't want to. It's it's a it's a marriage. You yeah, know, you just you have to be very very careful in how you deal with these things. The other thing I think you have to be careful about is nothing's cookie cutter in this world. You know, what worked at company A doesn't work at B. What works at B doesn't work at C or A. So the hard part about going into a new company and helping to advise them is quickly trying to figure out where's the Venn diagram? Like, where are the overlaps that might be kind of cookie cutter, but where are the spaces that I haven't seen before and where do you know, what used to work at company A is not going to work here at company B because they have a different product, different price point, different persona, different pain points, different messaging, you know, different sales process. It's not all cookie cutter. So you have to, and so many times you do see people and even in meetings, you hear VC saying, Oh, it happens over here at company A. You guys got to do this (laughs) same thing. And I'm thinking, really? It's a different product. It's a different pain point. It's a different, they're selling to a different persona at a different price point. It's not the yeah. same issues. That's right. Yeah. No, I, it's not I think, cookie I think, cutter. If it was cookie cutter, this world would be pretty boring. Pattern recognition is tough. You know, you need a lot of patterns to figure out the, you know, do you see a lot of stuff before you can see some basic pattern. And then you need to give advice. You need a lot of clarity. Yes. You, yeah. And that comes with only a lot of experience. So I think that kind of, as a venture capitalist, that part helped me more from a sales management perspective and a CEO perspective of making sure that you may not have all the answers, making sure that, you know, you should have, when somebody calls, don't judge, don't rush to judgment. You know, they have, they have, they're smart people. They've tried this before. You know, well, they're, they're living in 24-7 365, you're not. Yeah, <laughs> that's right? exactly right. And to your point, they probably tried three or four things before they called you. And same thing happens with uh, RDs and sales VPs. Exactly the same thing. It's not like they're calling you because some you know, those hairs on fire. You know, sometimes they do, but most of the time they've tried four things before they call you. Right, right. So it's it's your, I have to have a, and the sign of a good leader, I think, in any leadership is, empathy and understanding that those people who, who you've recruited may have already tried a bunch of stuff. So don't rush to judgment. Yes. Well, yeah. let's talk about now looking back on your whole career, everything that you've done. Yeah. 
Talk about a couple of things that are ingrained in your DNA now that weren't ingrained in your DNA earlier on, but you've seen it time and time and time again. And you're like, oh, this is something that just is ingrained in my DNA. Like earlier, you talked a little bit about recruiting is give, give me some examples of that. I'll give you the, the best example I can. And I thought about it when I, you know, when I was this, this call got set up, you know, as a, when I was in uh, high school and college and uh, high school and, and school, things came very easy to me, very easy. I was good at sports. I was good at, um, you know, studies. I was good at uh, academics. And, you know, I, I, I graduated high school when I was 14. Wow. And um, I thought I was the, you know, like the best thing since uh, Einstein, Arrowhead, like, you know, <laughs> and I had a horrendous uh, academically college life. I had like the best time of my life, a lot of uh, psychedelics, a lot of uh, interesting, uh, I met a lot of interesting people. I grew a lot as a person, but just not a good student. Did you go and to college at 15 years old? Yes. You yes. did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But I was not ready for it. No, I was no, not. But ready you, you learned a lot of things, maybe not in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no. But you know, like when I was in class, imagine I was 15 and the girls were 18. So there's nothing you could do. Like, yeah. <laughs> you, you're like who are you? And why are you here? But it was a tough, you know, I think my seven years as in, in college and university were not the best. And my father actually, um, when I came out, you know, he, 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 when I came home on one of these trips, he said, like, why are you worried? You know, you know, just, it's, it's all about the effort that you put in, the, the hours that you put in. He said, if you, even if you, if I buy you two cans of boot polish and, and a boot polish stand and you go to a crowded railway station, you'll make enough to sell. It's not about, like, you have to put in the hours. Like mm. you cannot be just you know wading through life because you did well in high school. You know you, you have to work hard. You have to kind of put in the effort. And I think that learning has stayed with you know. And he was very patient as a parent. Like I, he was, my father was my hero and very very patient. And he gave me this. You know it, it, that particular in, interaction is with him has stayed with me. And I now know that it may come, come in early, it may come in easy, but unless you grind it, unless you put in the work, nothing is going to happen. You may be right. the best. There's, no, there's no shortcuts is what I always say. There's simply Zero no shortcuts. shortcuts. And you always see people trying to take shortcuts and you're like, buddy, there is just no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. And you have to put in the effort. If you put in the effort in anything, you'll get well at it. You'll get good at it. Yeah, that's that was an example. Saying so you can put polished boots, and I'm like, who the hell cares? I hope you don't, but you can. Yeah. You have to put in the effort. You have to put in the work. And if you put in the, you know, you you have to. If you work hard at anything, it'll come to you. And I think that has, I would say, that stayed with me my entire life. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, um, you you you, in anything that I've tried. I think I've compensated my lack of intelligence with just pure hard work and grit. Yes. It well, is, what uh, is that saying from Calvin Coolidge? I think that, you know, persistence is omnipotent, you know, it's, 
It's not about your intelligence. It's not about anything else. It's about, you know, persistence. It certainly paid off for me. I mean, many, many times I'd be frustrated and think, how am I going to do this? And you just keep persisting. And next thing you know, it happens. Yeah. And the second thing I learned from uh, Bezos, uh, you know, I I met him once. Uh, We had co-invested in a company. And uh, I met him at a Starbucks. This is Jeff Bezos. I met him at a Starbucks. You know, he, he and his big laugh. And we were investing in a company that was a super technical founder. And uh, I was I was telling him we should bring in a you know professional CEO. We should bring in a CEO here because the technical. And he told me he said, um, "It's your call. You're the VC. Like I'm not going to come in the middle of this thing." Uh, but what you know. He said that there's a difference between a founder CEO and a CEO. He says, the founder CEO will see a vision and will keep chasing it. He'll relentlessly pursue it. Yes. Relentlessly pursue it. They'll come, if they see a wall, they'll hit their head on the wall and break the wall down and go right through it because they're chasing the vision. He said, a CEO will hit the same wall, his head will hurt, and then he'll find a new vision. So relentlessly pursuing opportunity is something that I learned as an entrepreneur. You know, you, you, you have to, you know, I think that is something that I've, I have now taken into my life always, which is if you see something, just chase it. There's no, that, don't let any wall come in the middle. Yeah. And I think that, allows you to kind of get that, if you have that drive to do it, I think a lot of good things follow. Yeah. Let's go back and ask you about sales, being a CEO and VC. So during your career as, you know, sales and as CEO and a venture capitalist, is it, what one thing has changed the most about sales? You know, um, I won't say one thing. Let me let me because a lot of your lot of the listeners are software sales people. Yes. Let me uh, talk about the arc of history here. You know, I joined tech and I started selling in uh, let's say the early nineties. It was and you you started around the same time, maybe before that. Um, you know, we were selling tools at that time to make you a little more efficient. Individual tools, desktop tools. Um, we moved from there to selling, doing vision sales because people are buying enterprise software, people are buying enterprise systems. That became, you were selling mostly to CIOs and IT people. And that, uh, you required an eight-legged sales animal, you know, just expensive sales, you know, sales, sales, VP, pre-sales, alliances, all that other stuff, you know, very expensive models. Now it's become more practitioner-led sales. The practitioner is, whether it's a data officer, whether it's the integration officer, API, whether it is business applications, the practitioner is making the choice. Yes. The IT person is there to make sure that there is no, you know, don't default on anything, but, uh, and it integrates well into the rest of the system. But the decision maker has shifted. And that is a, Basic difference, you know, the practitioner-led sales is quite different than the IT-led sales. And 
the way the practitioner selects is also different. Because look, when I started selling software, no, the internet didn't exist. You know, people did not know how to hook up printers to their PCs, okay? They didn't know the difference between a serial and a parallel bus. They, it, was like, it was ridiculous. It's true though. <laughs> So we could, you know, I, I could say, look, I'm like half a half literate about software and I could go and sell them things because I sounded more intelligent. In these days, my daughter is 37. She's, a, a, you know, these guys, these, at that age group, they're the, they, they've grown up on the internet. Yes. They've grown up with technology. They're completely comfortable with technology. They, it's, it's second nature to them. So they are very, very comfortable in making technical decisions, whether it's on the application side or whether it's on the infrastructure side. On the, you know, whether it's a DevOps engineer making a choice about a tool, whether it is an application developer making a choice about the application testing suite that they're using, or whether it is a data engineer making a choice on, on the database uh, things that they're working on. The, that persona has changed. That, I think, is a monumental shift in the persona and a monumental shift in how you get, how you get, ex how does your technology get exposed to the buyer? There's, you know, I think that shift, you saw that at Snowflake and, and at Mongo, right? You, you know, both had a very rapid land model and then what, the salespeople had to focus on the expand and conversion to enterprise deals. Yeah. I think so the product-led motion or technology-led motion, practitioner-led motion is a big, big change. Yes. Huge change. As a, um, and I think for salespeople, I think it is important for them to join organizations where there is already product market fit. Trying to get product market fit through sales, not happening anymore. So difficult. in my time, not so happening hard. now. Hard. Not so, <laughs> so difficult. So you, yeah. know, you, you tend to look at salespeople and say, oh my God, they're so successful. Yeah, they're successful. I mean, they were able to take a company from 10 million to 2 billion or 5 billion because they were great salespeople, great process people, great. But the land happened automatically. Land happened through uh, a technology uh, sale. And I think that is a big, I, I would say a big shift in our working, even as a VC now, when I'm looking for infrastructure software or developer software, I'm looking for velocity of lands. Yes. If there's velocity, you know, if they're landing more and more and more, I can go behind it and put money behind it. That would have helped so you when you were a CEO and you can, you had that difficulty scaling in the $3 million <laughs> deals. That would have helped. <laughs> it was so tough. You know, but it, look, in 1995, 1998, 2000, Software didn't exist the way it exists today. You know, we were oh, still writing, you know, yes. we had to, you got 80% fit and the rest 20% was always custom. Well, rapid always. development used to be that you do a new release every six months. That was like <laughs> yeah. rap, rapid development. Remember that? Now they're doing yeah. it every hour, every day, yeah. you know. It's so different. And I think this, this practitioner-led sales is a big shift in sales. Yeah. How the VC thinks about sales how the CEO thinks about sales and how a sales VP should think about sales. Yeah. And what's changed the most for founders or CEOs of software companies? What do you think's changed the most over, over the course of your career? I think, you know, uh, hail to the subscription model, 
you know, I think it's a, it's a great, uh, great for you to have a little a better life than we did by waiting for the, for the fax machine, uh, you know, to kind of make sounds at the end of the quarter. I think having a subscription business is so much better. I think there's what, more. What about, con, what about consumption of DevDot? That's changing oh. things a lot too now. Now, yeah. now you actually sold the product and you did a land. Wow. Okay, great. But now you got to get that customer to consume. Yeah, I know. I, I, you, it is all, you know, you need, I know at Snowflake, you guys had a pretty big debate on customer success versus no customer success. Yeah. It's uh, all consumption. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you know, how do you get the consumption up? Is it only product driven or do you need some humans to drive consumption? But it I also think- really forces salespeople to say, is this really a good deal? Because if I'm selling this deal, are they really going to consume it? Cause I'm only going to get paid if they consume. Yeah. So there's I no think- sense in me selling this deal just to sell a deal and, and walk away. No more hit and runs. I, I have to make sure this customer is going to be successful and going to consume not only what I sold them now, but want to come back and buy more so they can consume more. I think that is the difficulty that we have, we face is, you know, where do you apply the right sales resource? Because, you know, we are good salespeople. We can sell 50K, 70K trials bundled as sales. You know, we can do that all day long. Um, because, you know, we're dealing with large companies with large budget budgets. So you can kind of, but getting consumption going and then focusing on expansion and building a real relationship, taking a trial, converting it to a pro license, taking a pro license, converting it to the enterprise license, taking an enterprise license, converting it into an EDP program, walking that journey with the customer is I think where salespeople, real good salespeople are going to end up end up spending their time. Yeah. Because you can it's also, do- I think where real good companies start to focus, they actually sit there and think step-by-step step at a real granular level, what does this customer journey go? What is it going to look like? And where in that process am I falling down as a company? And where do I put my resources, right? Because you want your resource, your best resources actually focused on taking a pro license and moving it to a strategic relationship. Because that's when emotional intelligence is needed. You need, you know, you need the ability to kind of convince a bunch of people to standardize on this platform. Yes. Um, you know, I think that I think is where majority of the focus will go and the best salespeople will hang there. I think this hero trying to do a million dollar land, I think that I think is painful. And I think that that'll wash. The, the, there'll be a lot of lot of uh, bodies there. I don't think yeah. that's that's where the that's where the money. I, I know that's you know given my background as a salesperson, I'm sure you we like those hero sales, but I think the money is going to be on this side. Yeah, I agree. Hey, and what do you think's changed the most about the VC world in the last 15, 20 years? It's a it's been significant. So I think that. Things that have changed are we no longer think of $100 million revenue companies as successes. You know, we used to think about $100 million as a big magic number. Oh my God, we could take this thing public. Now it has to be $300 to $500 million in revenue growing 50% a year for it to have any kind of velocity in the markets. 
to get the market cap that you want. Because you're consuming a lot of capital anyway to get there. Oh, so, yes. Enormous so, amounts. So I think it's going to be, I think that is a big shift. You know, we used to think of $100 million revenue as success. Now I think it's $300 million revenue success. So I think that's a big shift. It, it is happening long. It takes longer to get there. It takes more effort. And, and now in the past two years, since the November 21, I think, you know, sales efficiency is becoming or production <laughs> productivity is again, <laughs> become a focus area. Yes, right? for sure. Yeah. People have to, uh, you know, everybody's talking about burn ratios and things that should have been talked about when we were building the company are now being discussed because money is no longer free. So right. Exactly. It. Just in the, you know, n not in the last couple of years, but prior to that, it was like, just grow it at all expenses. Yeah. You know? Because money was, people were printing money. So it didn't matter. Yes. You know, people said, let's throw money at this problem and grow this thing and we can get efficient later. Right. Right. And now it is, uh, you ought to be born if, you know, efficiency is becoming part of the DNA very early in companies like, which is actually good. So the growth rates may not be as high, but they'll be more efficient. I think the third thing that I think will be important, I think this is, this is my prediction, is that we are going to see global competition in software. And exactly like we disrupted when I was at Infosys, we and forced Accenture and IBM and KPMG to come to India. Otherwise, either, either you become Indian-centric or you die in the IT yeah, services yeah. space. We forced the American companies to come there. I'm seeing that now emerge in the software space. I'm I now agree. seeing companies that can operate at 15, 20, 25% net margin and growing 50, 60% a year um, because they can operate at the, the levers are that much better. But you're and, also uh, seeing a lot of companies that are um, opening up development centers all around the world, you know, Berlin, Poland, UK, all over. And that's no, going to start to fuel that also. I think sales and marketing is, you know, we were completely comfortable with 100% of revenue going to sales and marketing, then 40% of revenue going to sales and marketing. Now I'm seeing companies where 12, 13, 14% of revenue is going to sales and marketing. And that is a competitive advantage that I think some of us won't be able to compete with. Right. Yeah. Because we are kind of used to certain models. So I think that's something that people are, will have to watch as to, you know, what, what Japan did to the auto industry, can somebody else do to our tech industry? Yeah. We'll have to really, really watch that carefully. Hey, DevDot, there's been an explosion, I think, of software companies in the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years. And so as a venture capitalist, hasn't it been difficult to track all of those companies to figure out who I want to get in front of and, you know, who I want to try to, to fund? It's very difficult. Because when you were CEO at Yantra, what was there? Come on, let's exaggerate even. 300 companies in the world that were software companies. And now there's, yeah. there's 50 in a five-square-block area of San Francisco, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is, uh, it's, 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 uh, the life of a VC, it reminds you of a BDR. You know, you're, you're sourcing all the best say, uh, VC firms have the best sourcing engines. Um, you know, because you, you have to see a lot 
to be a good VC, you have to see a lot. Because if you see a lot, you're in the deal flow. If you see a lot, you'll do the deal. If you don't see it, you'll never do the deal. So you have to see a lot. And then you have to be a good picker. So the job has become very difficult because the amount of opportunity in front of you is a lot. Yes. So you have to... But you can't say, I'm going to focus on any of this. So you have to see, you know, you have to keep the funnel really, top of the funnel really wide, have a lot of sourcing intelligence, and then the short selection becomes important. Yes. Earlier, you didn't have the big sourcing. You know, there were 20 companies. So you didn't, you could see all the, you could see them every day. You know, you didn't yeah. have a problem. And then your, your short selection became simpler. Now, you don't, they're coming from all over the world. So, Inbound has become a big deal, you know, which is you get called into deals because you've built a brand in the space. Mm -hmm. You get called into APIs because I, I have done Kong or I've done Post. You get pulled into deals because you're of a, of a brand. And I think that has become a big change that you, go, you know, and then you have to build a network of very strong people who, are, who you trust who are going to show you some stuff that they see. So you have to kind of, you know, find a way to multiplex your sourcing. Yes. Um, but it's a hard business. It's become harder today than it was when I was a VC. So my last investment was in 2019. You know, since 2020, I actually put a bow on my career and moved to New York City to be a grandfather. So now I'm just on the boards of companies and paying taxes in New York. <laughs> paying lots of taxes in New York. <laughs> but I want to ask you one more, or actually two more questions before, before we go. So why don't we see more salespeople as founders or co-founders of startups? I mean, we can talk about Brian Halligan and Darmesh, the co-founders of HubSpot. And do you think that they got funded because Halligan, as a former salesperson, had Darmesh as the technical person by his side. So that was easier to fund versus some salesperson that comes up with a fantastic idea, maybe even gets a great demo and, and has a good business plan, probably won't have as much success in getting funded. Look, Halligan was, uh, uh, you know, he had joined Groove before he did his MBA. Yeah. So he had already joined the startup before. So he had a very successful career under you at PDC. Yeah. Then he joined Groove with Ray Ozzy as a CEO, as a VP sales. And then he went and did his MBA where he met Dharmesh. So by the time he kind of became an entrepreneur, he had already kind of gone through the grind of a startup. Okay, but there's, you can say that about plenty of other salespeople today. That I would say not, not career trajectory, but, but they don't, but they're not founding companies. I don't hear that, about the founding companies. I think so. I think that that was... Uh, you know, an important journey. So you, that is bare, bare minimum. You need to do that. Second is that you need a technical co-founder. You need That's what you were going to say that. Yeah. yeah. You can't do it all by yourself. You have, you need a technical co-founder who's can do the stuff that you can't do because it's a team effort. And the third is, I think you need a chip on your shoulder. You need a chip. And both of those guys had big chips on their shoulder and they still do. Right. I, mean, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I love those guys. Yeah. So I think I actually, I look for people with chips on their shoulder, you know, whether in sales or in uh, something to out, they have to prove something to someone or yeah. mostly to themselves. Um, 
And I think he had that. I think as a, that's like, he had very high founder quotient and he had a very good technical co-founder. Yes. And I don't think like good, you, you can be a good VC, a good, a good salesperson who becomes a good VC, a good salesperson who becomes a good CEO. It's just that you need to write people around you to make it all work. You can't, yeah. you, you can't just be a, a sales guy because, you know, as, as we discussed earlier, you, a, a lot of this is around product uh, market fit. And that yes. is a lot through kind of understanding the market, understanding your customer, understanding technology. Yeah. Like you were talking about PLG. Hey, so besides being a grandfather, you're also a co-founder with Brian Halligan. Yeah. The new VC fund named Propeller, right? Tell us, you know, why you decided to help start Propeller. Um, that's the right framing. You know, uh, it is not my idea. It is Brian's idea. So Brian, um, what, Brian and I both were affiliated with a research institution called Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And um, Brian was, after HubSpot, had spent some time looking for um, kind of things to spend his time on. And one of the big things he wanted to focus on was the problem addressing climate change. And he, he found the Woods Hole people very um, kind of uh, sympathetical. They wanted to do that. Yeah. Hui and uh, Brian had decided to do something. And he called on me because we had spent some time in Boston together. He knew I was a VC. He knew I had just retired. So he came calling and said, look, help me think through this venture thing. I've not done it before. And that's how I joined. So I'm kind of a, I would say, a small wheel in a big machine that's being built there. My job is being a mentor by, by coach, uh, helping them kind of build that organization. Um, but I, I joined it because, you know, I think, look, the climate change is real. You live in Florida, you know. Uh, it, sometimes, I take, sometimes, yeah. I want to take the politics out of it, but, you know, because we don't know whether it's up, down, whatever. You know, but over a period of time, we are seeing climate uh, climate events, bigger and bigger climate events coming to us. And, and I think it's going to become, uh, in the next 50 years, 75 years, uh, the life that my grandchildren lead will be governed a lot by climate. Hmm. So I'm very glad that the governments all over the world are taking action because the big rocks are going to be moved only by the government, by government. But I feel like what I learned in venture capital is that it's a fantastic instrument to create companies, to create change because the, the brutal efficiency of a balance sheet and a PL um, is a better lens to look at uh, rather than philanthropy. Philanthropy is kind of give money and who knows what happens with that. I mean, some, some good comes out of it. But in as a VC, when you put money behind an idea that's going towards solving a bigger problem, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know, um, in, in this, um, uh, I, I like that aspect of venture capital applied to climate science. So I thought, look, I think rather than giving money to philanthropy, why don't we give it to venture capital and then apply this discipline and see whether we can move small rocks. Right, because you know whether it is Uber, whether it is uh, you know, look at Uber. We literally we we have them. 
it has done wonders for climate change because we took so many cars off the road. We took so much of insurance money off the road. We took so many garages off the road because we tend to now use public, it's really like public transportation. Yes. So I think companies can solve for making world, the life world more efficient. And I thought VC would be a great way to do it. And I'm a, you know, I wanted to spend my time being a grandparent and spending a bunch of my time on climate change. So this kind of, it, it gave me like 25% of my time dedicated to this. I'm enjoying myself. I'm enjoying, yeah. but it's Brian's show. It's Brian's show. Yeah. I like the way you put that though, how the cold reality of, you know, you're funding them, but you have the cold reality of the balance sheet versus philanthropy. Yeah, yeah. I like the way you put that. That was really well done. Well, Dev Dutch, I'm going to let you get back to being a granddad. Thank, Thank you. you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, John. Fun, yeah. fun catching up. And at some point, you know, when you're up here in the, on the East Coast, let me know and um, we should catch up for coffee or a you drink or a beer. All right. That too. Right. Thanks, Dev Dud, And thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 